Hi, I don't know what I'm doing. Hi, I'm a privileged white person. The general white population should just shut up and listen. You're right that the first step is to shut up and listen. But if shutting up and listening is all that we do, then we don't help. Being willing to be wrong is also an important part of the process. If we just shut up and listen, then we don't contribute. The point is to shut up and listen and then to try to contribute. And you know, if we get things wrong, then also go back to listening. We're not out here to explain <laughs> black culture or black politics. Nope. We're not out here to even give the definitive read on these films, but we are here to just try and give some reflections and some reactions and some readings of them. And it would be worse if we didn't talk at all about African-Americans. I am inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes, smell what foul tunes come into his breath, love his wretched slits in the metal for sun, where my eyes sit turning at the cool air, the glance of light or hard flesh rubbed against me, a woman, a man, without shadow or voice or meaning. This is the enclosure, flesh, where innocence is a weapon, an abstraction, touch, not mine, or yours if you are the soul I had and abandoned when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man. If he is beautiful or pitied, it can be pain, as now, as all his flesh hurts me. Welcome to the Pointless Century, where we discuss history, culture, and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Today on The Pointless Century, your anti-fascist podcast of film and literature, ACAB times three, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing from 1989, Thelma and Louise from 1991, and using that as a bit of an entry point to the recent movie, Queen and Slip of 2019. So many similarities. Yeah. expression bad apple comes from the phrase a bad apple spoils the whole bunch so if you say that there are just a few bad apples that you have to get rid of you're admitting that you've lost the argument oh is that it that's the expression and that's what's literally true if you've ever had any apples you know that it's a phrase that people have used so many times that they forgot it was a metaphor and now they just use it as an expression These are the times we're living in when the state has made it absolutely clear to us that our lives are not worth anything whatsoever. We have over 100,000 deaths from the pandemic virus sweeping the country and the planet. More than a dozen people killed in two weeks of police riots. At the end of a month of protests, we're counting as many as 75 or 100 murders by police and white supremacist organizations, including any number of lynchings. 
against protests that dared to challenge the ability for law enforcement to kill black people with impunity. And I think it's official now. Minneapolis is disbanding the police department. Is that actually official? I I think so. I know there's been discussions of it. I saw a beautiful video that was posted by the Black Visions Collective. And they did a massive demonstration outside of the mayor's house on Saturday. That is yesterday. We were recording this on June 7th. God only knows how long it's going to take me to edit it and what the country will look like by then. But they had this massive demonstration out in front of the mayor's house. And the mayor came out and walked through the crowd with his mask on to talk to the demonstrators. And you had an organizer, a very passionate Black woman, explaining their position to him, asking him if he would defund the police. And the mayor went on and on, the way that politicians go on and on. Well, this is a problem, and that is a problem, and this is what I intend to do, and that is what I intended to do. And she took the microphone back from him, and she said, it's a yes or no question. Do you pledge to defund the police? And she gave it back to him, and he started hemming and hawing, and she took the microphone back again. And she said, it's a simple yes or no question. And then she called to the crowd, this massive, massive crowd, she called to them and said, he is up for re-election, so remember this. Remember this when you vote. Will you go on the record here saying that you will defund the police? And she handed the microphone back to him, and I could hear nothing. Like he was just standing there trying to think of what to say. And she said, get out of here, go home. And everybody in the crowd started yelling at him, and he turned and he had to walk through the whole crowd of what looked like hundreds if not thousands i have no idea how many protesters it's very hard to count the number of people in these demonstrations and they were all shouting shame 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 the whole time he had to walk out through that huge crowd shit we've never seen anything like this in our country a lot of people are comparing it to what happened in 1968 but i look at those videos of the riots in chicago Also, police riots where police were just attacking demonstrators. And I don't see anything like what I'm seeing out there. Last week in Philadelphia, they were dropping tear gas from helicopters on demonstrators on the Vine Street Expressway. People were scrambling up these steep embankments trying to get out of the cloud of riot gas. We saw police driving vehicles into crowds. We saw vigilantes attacking protesters with the explicit encouragement of the police in some cases. I have several friends of mine who live in sections of North Philadelphia, sections where uh, because white flight was never fully completed in Philadelphia, there are still old white neighborhoods that now with gentrification are actually becoming more diverse. And in some of these neighborhoods, they're reporting literal neo-Nazis going around with baseball bats looking for protesters and or any black people they can find to attack. And the police are literally in the streets high-fiving these gangs. The and, fuck? and thanking them for helping them. And at the same time, they're indiscriminately tear-gassing the black neighborhoods. What we have is more or less, or has been, a nationwide police riot. 
even when people are doing something that you might not like. If you think that rioting and looting is a huge, huge, big deal, and certainly sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's understandable, sometimes it's downright justified. Everything can't be boiled down to one simple explanation of like, oh, good, bad. Even if you see something and you say, oh, that's really nasty, I disagree with that, don't just like do the simple thing and say, well, therefore, it must be somebody who doesn't know what they're doing stirring something up. Because you also need to grant people their own ability to make choices, even, even choices that might seem difficult to understand. That's why you go to that. school to learn <laughs> shit. Get educated! I mean, the, the outside agitator narrative, and there are sometimes when you're going to see like actual literal outside agitators, there, there are, it is true that occasionally you do have police departments trying to stir shit up. It is true that occasionally you do have like weird right-wing accelerationists trying to cause bigger problems than there already are. Even if we see a few instances of that here, I don't think that's going to be the general tendency, though. I think that it's pretty easy to see why people are angry, and it's important to yeah. just accept that anger as legitimate. Yeah. And as for the idea that there are these leftist Antifa radicals who are infiltrating the movement, this is just a way of, well, first off, talking shit on anti-racist organizing, which the whole point of anti-racist organizing is if you're a radical anti-racist and white, then yes, you should be working in coalition with the black communities in and around where you live. Otherwise, how are you doing anti-racist organizing, right? So it, yeah. to, to say that those people are infiltrators is ridiculous. And then secondly, of course, it's a patent excuse to try and remove people from the bounds of the law by, by declaring some group a terrorist organization. And Antifa is neither an organization nor terrorist, right? So it's to call, an ideology. To, it's not even really an ideology. It's more a tactic. It's mainly like, we got to fight back, you know? Antifa is just a synonym for anti-fascist. So you could have socialist Antifa folks. You could have anarchist Antifa folks. You could even have, you know, vanilla liberal Antifa folks. When I was coming up in the 90s, I never heard the term Antifa, but I did know the term anti-racist action or ARA. And I did know about the tactic of black block, which is very much the kind of stuff that looks like what people call Antifa now. It's basically people, black and white together going out and uh, confronting neo-Nazis or Klansmen if they're going to do a demonstration to make sure they keep the community safe and to be there as a buffer if, if those people try and attack anyone. So they definitely would see that as a defensive tactic. And because a lot of these people are anarchists, then it's tricky in terms of the way that the press talks about them in that they end up getting branded as violent. In the way that they see it, they're being purely defensive. They don't trust the police for reasons which by now must seem obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and because of that, they feel like they are the frontline defense against the fascist. What we're here to do is we're here to talk about art. We're here to talk about film and literature, and we're going to connect it to politics inevitably. But, you know, if people want that kind of stuff, check out podcasts like Worst Year Ever, reporting groups like uh, Unicorn Riot, there's another podcast called Popular Front. Uh, so there, there are places to find that stuff. And like I said, I'll have some, some further listening. Uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts called uh, Pod Damn America, uh, run by Jake Flores, who is a comedian, but he's also a left winger. And he's 
located in Brooklyn and he, you know, went through the whole thing being, if you will, the white wall between the police and the BLM protesters. Um, and he's Latino. I mean, I've never seen what he looks like. He describes himself as a white passing Latino. The tactic there is you put your white looking folks in the front and then hopefully that keeps the police from attacking quite so viciously into the group. Well, as we've seen, obviously they still do attack, but maybe people don't get killed. Um, like in Novacento with the women <laughs> laying down Exactly. Exactly. We saw that in that movie. It was sort of a similar tactic with the women in the front figuring that the cavalry soldiers aren't just going to march right over the women. Yeah. But then you got the men in the back with the sticks if you need them. He went through the whole thing uh, down to being beaten up and arrested and released. And he did a whole uh, thing on his show, uh, basically describing the situation and what it looked like on the ground. It was quite, quite good. Now, by the time this show gets posted, I have no idea what this is going to look like on the ground. And this is a very confusing situation. It's very difficult to keep track of. In every city, it's different. But there are general trends. Yes, you have your nonviolent protests. Yes, you have people who are protesting in more vociferous ways. Yes, you have people destroying property. But more often than not, it seems what the case is, is that the police are provoking people intentionally just out of the sheer offensiveness to them that anyone would dare question their authority. And what authority is that? That's literally the authority to kill people and not suffer consequences. And so that's why we're having people call for the abolition of the police or defunding the police, depending on the way they want to put it. We have a lot of liberals talking about this as if this is some new idea. This is an idea that people in the Black community have been talking about for a long time. It's an idea that radical leftists both white and black have been talking about for a long time. It's an idea that people have written books and books and books and books about. It's an idea that it's very easy for a lot of commentaries to be like, well, how would that work? That seems like a very poorly thought out notion. I don't necessarily want to get into too much detail on political theory or even on the news because, as I said, who knows what it's going to look like on the ground by the time that this thing gets posted. But I'm just laying that down as the context for us watching these movies that we're going to talk about and thinking about the things that we're going to think about. Do the Right Thing takes place over the course of a single day in a neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. When I say a neighborhood, Bedford-Stuyvesant is obviously a neighborhood, but I mean like literally a block of Bed-Stuy. And it's one of these incredibly hot summer days. We get a sort of snapshot into the lives of these various characters, and then the day ends with the senseless killing of an unarmed member of the community. Radio Rahim. And then what, to our eyes, would seem like a comparatively small riot. Why don't one of you just start by describing the opening credit sequence? We have the actress Rosie Perez vigorously, and I say vigorously, <laughs> dancing. Gyrating her hips. It's like a thrusting motion, but really weird, and she's like in one of those workout onesies. In the background also is this very 80s music, and she's wearing a very 80s outfit, and the camera is very close to her, so that's basically all we see in the frame, besides the background and obviously the credits. 
she would go on to play the renegade cop in Birds of Prey. Oh, really? This was her feature film debut. We have to point out that it is it is Fight the Power by Public Enemy. What to you probably sounds like very, very 80s music is a distinctly Black nationalist style of hip-hop. Right. I completely got the message from, obviously, Fight the Power, but yeah, 80s. Like this is 1989. This is the culmination of the whole 20th century. I mean, you don't have to guess what decade it's filmed in. To my mind, what's like really noteworthy about thinking about uh, the soundtrack to Do the Right Thing, which is obviously public enemy and in large part just that one song versus what we see from the soundtrack of a movie like queen and slim there's obviously a large shift in 30 years between 1989 and 2019 in what hip-hop sounds like queen and slim also brings in a lot of other black music and i would i would say that the soundtrack of queen and slim is almost like a sampler of the history of African-American music in terms of it including contemporary gospel, including blues, R&B, and yeah, of course, hip-hop as well. But what you hear of the hip-hop in Queen and Slim, that very 21st century, 2019-2020 hip-hop, that electronic hip-hop is very much about stripping things down, digital beats, whereas a sound like you get in the 80s with a group like Public Enemy, where you have an analog turntable and Terminator X is layering so much stuff. It's a cacophony of polyrhythmic sound that's cut together. Different styles of music, very prominently features a lot of James Brown riffs. And it's like the opposite of what we see in hip hop these days, where because you can do that so much easier with digital technology, then there's no point in trying to layer it so heavily anymore. And people are much more into just like stripping it way down and being like, why does he use this intro? Is it just that he wants to show us a beautiful woman dancing in a way that's like distinctly urban? All of these movements start in urban epicenters. They're defined by their pop culture. So they're mixing pop culture with the start of a revolution with culturally significant dance moves to signify that. The dance is part of the culture. The culture is part of a political statement. It all goes together. There's plenty of room, of course, to critique this as the camera obsessing over the female body, which yeah. I'm shocked to see in a movie, right? Wow. <laughs> It's so stupid. <laughs> why do you have to have that in there? I, I get it. I get why. I just, I still get mad. It's fine. I do think uh, the song fine. is way more important than her dancing, but obviously you're just playing to the audience to have her busting it up. It's a bit of like a back and forth for me with that as a female who likes females featuring her like that and so sexually and for so long. That's gross. But then the homo part of me is like, Oh, damn. I mean, she's good looking. There's no, there's no getting around that. Yeah. <laughs> there's also probably something in terms of viewing cultures that's worth mentioning. In 1989, obviously, VHSs were pretty thoroughly infiltrated into middle class life, but we couldn't necessarily assume that say the the kind of inner city black audience that Spike Lee is really interested in speaking to would have that kind of technology at their disposal so most of those people would be watching this movie in a theater and for a long time 
obviously in the era of coronavirus, this is a little bit different. In the era of streaming, this is a little bit different. But for a long time, African-American attendance at movie theaters was always disproportionately high compared to, say, your generic white suburban dude who the Hollywood producers always assume that they're making movies for. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of surprising that you wouldn't see more Black-oriented movies earlier than you did, but then, you know, that's how racism operates. Um, This kind of an intro, to my mind, is very much like a movie theater intro where you get a long lead-in time maybe people have to go to the bathroom maybe people show up late maybe people are getting food and if you're there you got something to listen to and something to watch and if not you're not missing anything so i think it works really well for a movie that's presuming that its audience is going to be watching this in a theater and if you're there it draws you in too like oh damn (laughs) (laughs) and we can also see this as like the introduction of rosie perez to america Mm. Yeah. yeah for better or for worse let's talk about the vision of New York City that we get in this film. While it's easy to think of Spike Lee as a Black director and it's easy to think of his movies as Black movies, and certainly he doesn't try to not make Black movies, right? Uh, A large part of what he's doing is claiming that. But at the same time, it is obviously important to him to portray this community as very much not homogenous, right? We get Mm -hmm. a vision of multicultural, multi-ethnic New York City in a way that is, of course, core to the presentation of the conflicts within the film, but also it's exactly the kind of thing that people talk about if they talk about what's so great about New York and indeed what's so great about America. You obviously see the what we'd now call uh, Latinx community. Uh, specifically, I, I think that Tina and her family are Puerto Rican. Um, <laughs> and obviously many Black characters. Among them, we have a number who are distinctly Caribbean. Uh, you see mm-hmm. in those scenes, those scenes with the old men sitting out in front of the red wall. One of yep. those is a Black American who's lived his whole life probably in Brooklyn. And the other two are, I imagine, Jamaican, perhaps Trinidadian immigrants. I don't know if it's specific, but the, the point is that they're from the Caribbean. And you can, you can hear that in their accents. So you have a few different styles of speech here. The one character... Sweet Dick Willie. Mm-hmm. Speaks in a very typical American Ebonics Uh, Whereas the other two are speaking in perhaps two different Caribbean accents. I couldn't necessarily place them specifically, but they're they're not the typical African-American vernacular. I was going to talk about Radio Rahim's um, soliloquy about his hands and the knuckle punchers, the love-hate. I just find it very true and it simplifies things so even some dumbasses can see light in it and make sense of it. And I just think it's very poetic. I mean, yeah, it's a soliloquy. In the most general sense, we can take it to be a way of talking about the film's core decision for Mookie and for this community and maybe for Black America more generally mm-hmm. is... Is Black America going to commit to love or is it going to succumb to hate? 
Yeah. We can also see it as standing in for the representations of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X that run throughout the film. And I do hate this dichotomization of King and Malcolm X because yep. mm-hmm. they really did, in a certain sense, represent elements of the movement that always worked together and wouldn't have been as successful as they were if they weren't both present at the same time. And it's the same thing that we see out there in the streets right now where yeah you do need your peaceful protesters but the peaceful protesters will just get the shit beaten out of them if Mm -hmm. there isn't also somebody back there to be like well either you can negotiate with these guys or you can pay the price yep yep Um, Um, so there is a milwaukee based group in the 60s and it was started by the naacp i forgot what its name was but they're all, there were also um, examples of organizations like this where the Black Panthers and the Deacons of Defense. Um, but, oh, the Youth Commandos, the NAACP Youth Commandos Armed Self-Defense Group, um, they, did, they did a lot of reform. They protected a lot of people, yeah. especially with the Eagle Club, um, with the um, justices. Um, they were formed through that um, and protected people that were protesting those jurors for being a part of that racist organization mm-hmm. which they're very important to yeah. the progress of the movement even if the historical the if the master narrative likes um conveniently uh takes them out and part of the reason why that's the narrative we get is because the Black Panther movement and radical movements in general were cracked down on so viciously in the 70s mm-hmm. by the FBI, by local law enforcement, even to the point of major leaders in those movements being literally killed by the police. Yeah. It's the same thing that we quite honestly saw or rather didn't see after the Ferguson protests. There were a lot of key leaders and organizers in those protests who over the next years just went missing under mysterious circumstances in cases that were never solved and everybody in the activist community assumes that cops murdered them Mm -hmm. Um, in a certain sense what we see then happening in african-american political culture from the 70s into the 80s is that the political culture necessarily goes underground with its leadership decapitated groups like the black panthers and other community organizations and political organizations end up mutating into more generic street gangs for instance the crips and street gangs obviously get a bad rap but in the best case scenario is street gangs do what the cops are supposed to do, which is they add a little order into a, a disorganized community and give some sort of system with which people can seek um, necessary redress of grievances and reparations. They also can be, of course, straight up criminal enterprises, which is often what they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and as we as we can see, the police operate in the worst case scenario, as literal gangs too. So um, if you're saying that we don't want to have police, then in a certain sense you're saying that, well, we don't want this strange gang to be ruling over us. 
uh, if you're saying that we don't want gangs, then it's sort of a sim similar thing. We also get a shift to the cultural realm where with the Black Power Movement, we also have the Black Arts Movement, which Amiri Baraka was a big part of. And we get out of that poetic creative spirit and out of things like the memory of Muhammad Ali's brilliant speeches. We get the rudiments of what ends up being rap. From Jamaica, we start getting sound system music where people are spinning records and mixing them together and then they'll have an MC rap over them. And then by the time these kinds of techniques uh, make it to neighborhoods like the Bronx and Brooklyn or to boroughs like the Bronx and Brooklyn, we get the invention of hip hop. What we have with a group like Public Enemy is then trying to revive <laughs> some of that spirit of black power and black arts and reinvigorating hip hop with it. We get a sort of similar thing going on on the West Coast with, with groups like NWA, which uh, is also sort of thought of as the inventors of gangster rap. But as, as I said, you know, to call it gangster rap, yes, of course it is gangster rap, but also that's political too, right? If we, we think about a track like Fuck the Police, without a gun and a badge, what do you got? A sucker in a uniform waiting to get shot. The idea being <laughs> that like the cops are really just another gang. A well-funded gang. Radio Rahim's explanation of the love and hate rings he wears is an homage to the speech that the preacher gives in The Night of the Hunter, 1955. Robert Mitchum's preacher has tattoos on his hands that say love and hate. And it's kind of ironic because Radio Rahim is supposed to be one of the sort of anchoring protagonists of the film, a guy that everybody loves even if nobody quite understands him. And the preacher in um, Night of the Hunter is a fucking creep uh, and ultimately ends up being the villain of what is a really weird horror movie that we will eventually watch. It's also, I think, a good example of something that means something quite different in this specifically African-American context where we're thinking about, well, what does it mean to do the right thing? What does it mean to live in a world of both love and hate? Can love beat hate? when is hate in some ways justified versus the bit that Robert Mitchum is doing in Night of the Hunter where he's this unhinged creep who's invaded an otherwise safe suburban or rural setting. In some of what I see Spike Lee doing in a movie like Do the Right Thing, it reminds me a bit of what Quentin Tarantino is going to be doing in the next few years in his movies, where a lot of their movie making is about referencing things within their cultures, broader American culture, but then also specifically movie watching culture. I don't know if that says something specifically just about them or maybe just about what postmodernism in the late 80s and early 90s looked like. It was very super referential. That gives us a sort of intro into talking about uh, Spike Lee's style. How would you describe Spike Lee's style in the movie? It's not afraid to show shit. Yeah, it is an unvarnished look at yeah. the world. It's very choppy, yet somehow he manages to piece the story together in a way that the viewer can take lessons from it. You know, it is educational. I thought it was interesting how he utilized the different storylines, but in the end, it all ends up at the same place. 
there is something that is fundamentally urban about that, very New York about that, where it's like everybody is living their own lives, doing their mm-hmm. own sort of things. It's all about how the plot lines intermesh and mm-hmm. go apart and then come back together again. You see this in the way that a show like Seinfeld is set up, a 90s New York <laughs> television show. Very. And, and about as far from do the right thing as you could possibly get, of course, yeah. right? Very, very upper middle class, very, yeah. very painfully white and with an entirely different sense of humor but you still have those sort of same structures where like living in a city people go places they do things they know each other they come together they go apart and and that kind of structure works here too i've heard a lot of people describe spike lee's writing style especially in his earlier movies as being too much of a morality play of being a little bit too reliant on melodrama Did you get that sense here? As I said, it it is in a certain sense educational. That is maybe what you risk in doing this type of a movie. I don't see him going overboard with it in this film. No. I think it's just the right amount. And he mixes it together with other elements, you know, such as humor. I think that for a movie like this, it really does require humor. Yeah. One would say that living within a system of oppression provokes a certain kind of humor. Right. Yeah, sort of like a mortician, like a funeral home director has a certain kind of humor. Right. There are distinct ethnically defined versions of humor too, right? There's, Mm -hmm. we see most obvious, there's like a Jewish sense of humor. I'm not sure if I could necessarily even put my finger on what that is specifically, but people do speak of that as a thing. It is something that comes from the irony of in the words of Amiri Baraka, right, living inside someone who hates you, right? And so here we do have a distinctly African-American approach to the world, which sometimes is full of bitterness and then uses humor to rise above that bitterness, just in the same way that we would see any kind of uh, group that historically has been put down has had to find ways of living through that, through both narrativization and also through comedy. It's in that same way that Paul Fussell in the First World War is talking about irony as the most crucial response to the First World War, that living through the horrors of something like that, you have to have this dark sense of humor, again, like a mortician. One thing that Do the Right Thing does quite well, and I think that this is what people who don't like Spike Lee's style are trying to criticize, is that it does simplify things and then complicate things and then simplify them and complicate them in alternating moments. When we get to the scene at the end where they've destroyed the pizzeria, they're bashing it up, they're looting it, and then they turn and it's a question of whether they're going to attack the Korean grocery store. And the Korean grocer's argument is basically to the effect of, I'm like you, I'm not white. And well, I think they were saying, I'm black like you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like the eventual conclusion that is actually said out loud is, okay, the, the Koreans are black, which is, I want to say this vigorously idiotic oversimplification of the situation. It isn't that they just destroyed the pizzeria because those guys were Italian. They destroyed the pizzeria because of a series of events that happened specifically that ended up in them targeting that spot. And yeah, the fact that it was run by Italians was part of that, but there were a lot of other details that were involved. And similarly, if they would have attacked the Korean grocer, there would have been a lot of specific details on top of the fact that it was run by Koreans that that informed that, right? Yeah. And similarly, the reason why they stop at that moment 
can't really be explained as, oh, the Koreans are black, because we know that the Koreans aren't black. <laughs> and, and we know that there is always going to be conflict between these people. And a lot of that is really just straight up class conflict. Yeah. It's, it's this fact that, well, you have things, I have nothing, I'm constantly paying you for the things that I need to survive. That's conflict within capitalism. It's filtered through race because of the way that the bank is going to dole out loans, because of the way the intergenerational wealth has been basically disallowed under the American system, uh, because of any number of things that we would call you know, systemic racism that targets Black people in America. I felt like Sal got nicer as time went on. Like, he didn't change as a person. He was just shown to be more nice to yeah. Black residents let's, as time went on. Let's spend some time talking about Sal, played by Danny Aiello, who is the owner of the pizzeria and who, I don't know if I could necessarily describe him as the antagonist of this movie, but he is something like an antagonist, perhaps, right? Yeah. He's literally Mookie's boss. Mookie is the main character played by Spike Lee himself. He is the father of two sons, Pino, played by John Tuturo, who's more obviously and explicitly racist. And the little brother, uh, Vito, played by Richard Edson, who Mookie sort of feels like he's more allied with. So somebody tell me about the way that we took uh, the character of Sal, because I do think that it's actually one of the more nuanced characters in this movie, and it's easy to miss that if you're just looking at this purely through the lens of race. He respects the residents because they also help pay his bills. Um, he spent so much time there, and as he said at one point, I've seen these kids grow up. They, they grew up on my food, and for the older folks, I just saw them get older. Like, he's formed connections with them. And he built that shop there, even if it was so he could get more business and profit off people. But he's grown with these people, whereas his sons grew up with them, but the same respect didn't obviously go with them. Yeah. Sal definitely feels like he's a part of the community. And in a certain way, he's presented as the good capitalist. Um, but there's a limit to that, just in the same way that we see in a movie like Novacento. He is now in the position of the patrone, and he is the good patrone, but he's still the patrone, right? He's still... And the $2 extra cheese when the slice is one fifty. Yeah. I think that the $2 extra cheese was actually $0.50. Cents. The extra cheese slice is $2. It's $0.50 cents more. Oh, I'm so stupid. How did I pass? I was like, bro. You might not quite appreciate how like people are like literally coming into a place like this with quarters in their hands. Like, yeah, no, they didn't have those two extra quarters. The whole economic condition of this black neighborhood, which again, literally we're looking at a single block in Bed-Stuy where you have only two businesses. One is run by an Italian family and the other is run by a Korean family. This is something that is extremely common in inner cities, I would say across America, but certainly what I've seen in the Northeast. And it's something that goes back to, you know, Malcolm X's critique of the United States of America, when he's calling for a black nationalist movement and a black nationalist economics, he's saying, when you pay money to someone like that, they take that money out of your community and then they take it home with them to wherever they really live. 
basically you're being robbed by these people. And, and it's, it's a critique of capitalism, but it's also a critique of the way that racism operates in America. And as I said, a lot of this does come down to very specific and well-documented racist practices within the way that banks and real estate operate. That's why Black-owned businesses are so important to the Black community in ways that I imagine would be obvious in a place like this where people's horizons are actually rather narrow, you know. Obviously, you've got the transportation system, you can go all over the city, but people in a in neighborhood like this will spend a lot of their time, you know, on the same block or two. Yeah. Slim said in Queen and Slim to Queen that the reason he chose this restaurant is not because he doesn't have the money, but because it's a Black-owned restaurant. Yeah. And we will, of course, eventually get to Queen and Slim, but I do want to pick apart, do the right thing. I think it's a great example in the movie where the character of Queen is generally presented as better educated, more worldly, more more aware of what's going on. But Slim, even if he's not in any sense book smart, he's very conscientious about his decisions that he makes in the world, even if he isn't like highly political we could say that we see a little bit of that in something like Do the Right Thing too. A character like Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito, who's the explicitly political character, the one who's always ready to start trouble, the one who ultimately wants to organize a boycott of the pizza shop. The one who always bugs out. Exactly. He has a very book smart knowledge of politics and of history that is a bit different from the kind of knowledge that we might see in a character like Mookie himself or in a character like Radio Rahim. Though they're all politically and socially and historically aware in their own ways, even just the stereo battle that Radio Rahim has with the Latin crew, there's something political going on there. Even if it's reduced down to, I have 10 D batteries and my stereo is louder than yours. That was a funny moment. It's funny and it's, it's also one of those moments where the humor is a humor that's then again masking a deeper problem which is that these people are living in such close proximity that they are always sort of pitted against each other in one way or another and even if it even if this is just in like a silly little you know dick measuring competition over boom boxes it's indicating something deeper that's going to seethe and seethe and seethe until it boils over yeah it sort of explains why spike lee sees fit to include in the middle of the movie that bit where it's just like the characters spouting out epithets at each other or at abstract notions at the stereotypes of the others in their communities It also um, really brings attention with the 20D batteries. There's so much in that little bit. Even though these people are degraded elsewhere by white citizens, they're still pitted against each other, even though they share similar votes. Megan said something to me today, which I thought was really good, though it's exactly that sort of cheesy Facebook woke. But still, it's good enough to be mentioned. No, we're not in the same boat. We all have different boats, but we're in the same storm. Yeah. Like, be aware of whether that dude over there is in a rowboat and you're in a cruise ship, you know. But we're in the same storm, and yes, indeed, a rising tide will raise all ships, but don't get it confused. We're in different boats. (laughs) Yeah, we're not. They have similarities, but they're not the same model. I really like that whole bit. That, to me, highlighted that so often we characterize 
um, racial conflict between white communities and the African-American communities. Conflict isn't limited to just those two groups. In fact, there can be many different points where it crosses over and you have tension between multiple groups. And we really miss what racism is and indeed what America is when we boil down the problem of race to a white-black conflict, which we tend to unfortunately do. You know, if we were in the Southwest, it would be more obvious. But then again, Western Wisconsin has a larger Latinx population than it does an African-American population. And of course, our largest minority group is Hmong. Let's talk a little bit about the cops in Do the Right Thing. At first, it seems like the cops aren't going to be major characters or even important at all. It seems like Mm -hmm. they're just sort of like a bit joke part. We see them responding to... Dancing in the fire hydrant water. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not even that, though. It's stereotypical car-obsessed Guido bitching about the dudes. Yeah. uh, Don't get water in my car. Who've, yeah, ripped open the fire hydrant. The bit is really about how petty this guy is. It's the Italian Karen, if you will. Like, really? You called the cops for this? I'm going to obsessively bring everything back to class because I don't see how I couldn't. What's going on here is you have somebody with a car that's supposedly really nice saying, don't mess up my car. Motherfucker, these people don't have cars. Like, why are you driving through this neighborhood thinking that people aren't going to fuck up your car? Why do people bust open the fire hydrants and run around in them in the middle of the summer? They literally don't have air conditioning, you and your fancy car. Fuck you. When the cops come over, this sort of sense that I got originally was the cops are almost the voice of reason, and I guess almost is doing a lot of work there, but they are fully aware of how stupid the situation is. And so they adhere to the letter of, yeah, we're going to shut off the fire hydrants. Don't bust them open again or you'll get in trouble. But their heart isn't really in it. Yeah, that's what I get out of it. It's weird how they turn from recognizing the stupidity of the situation and completely turning and making some systemic mistakes. Is that what you'd call them? I don't know. But that's exactly what it is. The systemic mistake is when you recognize that what I'm doing is stupid, but I'm still such a dim-witted bootlicker that I'm going to do it anyway. If you had a spine in your fucking back, you'd be like, it's stupid and therefore I won't do it. Especially for something as small as, like, should this fire hydrant be open? If you can't even give people a pass for that when it's the hottest day of the year, everybody's suffering through it, you know they don't have air conditioning. Come on. Dick. It comes up again at the end when they're rioting. And I'd almost forgotten this because my main takeaway from the rioting is, you call that rioting? They turn the fire hoses on the rioters. On the material level, this is part of the equipment of police brutality. On the historical level, you have the very clear reference to the times that that was done during the civil rights movement. And then on the structural symbolic level of the film, you have, ah, yes, here comes the fire hydrant back again with a vengeance. And yet we don't see pepper spray. We don't see people being run over. It's hard to gauge what's a bad riot anymore, I guess. It's fascinating that you point that out because I didn't see it as that, but now I do. It's the repurposing of the class tool, a.k.a. the water. You can put it this way. Who is in charge of society? Are the people in charge of society or is the state in charge of society? And what do we mean by that? Well, on the level of people going out in the streets and saying abolish the police, 
the police are the way that the state says we are in charge of who's safe and who's in danger. We are in charge of whose pain is considered important. We are in charge of whose death is considered important. And that's quite different than, say, a community organization like a community watch, where that's more decentralized and more focused on groups of people coming together as civilians and making those decisions, or even a literal gang making those sorts of decisions, which I'm not like advocating that. I'm just saying like that's a different alternative structure where you'd say you'd have some subset of warriors within the community who are making those kinds of decisions. We could say that in some ways, white America thinks of the police force as doing that, but that's, of course, never how it plays out in minority communities, and certainly that's not how it plays out in the city. I saw some statistic that I think it was like 80 or 90-some percent of Minneapolis cops live outside of Minneapolis, and that's exactly why you have a situation where both the police themselves and the communities they're policing feel like they're an occupying army. Yeah. So when we see the question of, am I allowed to open up this fire hydrant? You have on a very basic material level, the question of, well, I pay the city for the water. This is my street. This is my block. This is our fire hydrant. Let's open it up. We're hot. Versus the police and the fire department coming in and saying, no, you can't open that up. That's not for you to make that decision. That is the city's decision or the state's decision. And then, of course, what is the state really great at doing, even when it's not a damn bit good at doing anything else, is, of course, brutalizing its citizens. So what are we going to use the yep. water for? Not for its intended purpose of putting out fucking fires to save life. We're going to use it to brutalize you. We can think of that as like a very on-the-ground basic material question of who is in charge of society, who runs the block. We see it economically on the level of who's in charge of the businesses, but we see it also structurally in terms of the way that the police and the fire department and the infrastructure itself operates. Did we think that bugging out's objection to there not being any african-americans on the wall of fame was legitimate since the entire consumer body is this black neighborhood i'd say that it's not acceptable but mm -hmm. it is also owned by an italian a white man but he's getting his money through these african-american citizens so typical of capitalism to be like i'm the boss i make the rules okay yeah but you're like not the only person here dude I would love a version of this where in response to Buggin' Out's objection, Sal said something like, you know what, let me think about that. Maybe this really should all be about Brooklyn. Maybe we could have just like famous people from Brooklyn on this wall, black and white and Hispanic and whatever. And that's sort of hinted at when we see Spike Lee in the Jackie Robinson jersey early on. If you're going to have all these Italian baseball players on the wall, you ought to have Jackie Robinson on the wall, seriously. In Brooklyn, yeah. And kind of a dick for not. Yeah. I do kind of feel like he's a dick for sticking on that point. And then also, as it's very clear for most of the other characters in the film, it's a stupid thing to organize a boycott over. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that what it is is symbolic of the deeper exploitation that's just inherent in the whole situation Thank this is you. a movie about a food desert i mean we have yeah. a fancy word for it now but this is more or less a movie about a food desert 
it's not even about pizza shop it's not about the people on the wall it's about the broader process of questioning what ideas matter and to whom because of underlying things such as race and class so it doesn't even matter if his claims are legitimate it's just highlighting that whole process once we start thinking about this, we start thinking about the way that Spike Lee's movie really does operate on a highly symbolic level. It has moments where it certainly feels realistic, but it also has many, many moments where it feels like a melodrama or a morality play. The pizzeria, which of course is a literal pizzeria on so many blocks in so many neighborhoods in so many inner cities, right? Is mm-hmm. is also really like symbolic of America. Like how are you going to boycott the pizzeria? I mean, like you got to eat. It's symbolic of the whole system that these people have found themselves inside. I am inside someone who hates me. So therefore, of course, the conflict is purely symbolic, where it's like a question of, okay, well, whose face do we get to put on the wall? Who do we get to say represents us? As I mentioned, some people think that this is something that makes, especially Spike Lee's early movies, a little bit simplistic. But I actually think that it's complex, even while being willing to simplify in moments where that simplification is actually quite plausible in terms of the way that people in ordinary life speak, especially in, say, an inner city context. But it also does complicate it. And I do want to at least dwell on the character of Sal a little bit more because I think he is actually quite complicated. And I do think that if people are saying that Spike Lee is writing a melodrama, the character of Sal is actually what disproves that because he's actually quite nuanced in his attitude towards the neighborhood. And part of what happens in the movie, even though he ultimately is the antagonist, even though he ultimately is the villain, part of what happens leading to this riot is a series of misunderstandings about who he is and what he stands for. Yeah. I think he feels like a father figure in this neighborhood. To some degree, yeah. And perhaps that's also just as bad as it might sound to some people. You could say maybe that he's gotten too comfortable, so to speak, that he's he's missed how just by his very relationships to these people, he's automatically always going to be exploiting them whether he wants to or not. And that he tells himself the story of being this father figure. We see how this is not something that other people are going to agree with him on in the way that he interacts with Mookie's sister. The way that he interacts with Mookie's sister, Jade, basically enrages Mookie. He holds it back because he has to in front of his employer, but he tells her how he feels about it. Rachel, you said rightfully so, so take it away and explain how you took that interaction. Well, she's taking everybody's kindness as just pure kindness and not anything more, but he does want to get in her pants, but she's just trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Anna, do you think he's trying to get in her pants? He's taking it at this weird angle where he's trying to be like a father figure, which is weird because I wouldn't call him a protector for Mookie at all. He's taking that element of trust and subtly exploiting her, manipulating her, whatever we want to call it. Maybe not even trying because she thinks of him so fondly. It's more common than we think. We see it repeated over and over again in film, even in real life. There is that element there, but it's also not the only thing there. I think that he is under the impression that he means to set that up as a kind of father-daughter or uncle-niece situation. The way that he goes about it kind of irks the audience, or at least irks me. In order for the setup to work, it has to be ambiguous, of course. 
And so we have to Im imagine it as a, if you want to put it this way, Biden-esque moment where like he's crossing a line and he doesn't know he is. I'm not actually sure that I want to even give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt on that one, but that's not what we're here to talk about. That's the kind of like setup that I'm trying to present to you though. Right. They're like, I'm too affectionate. I'm too touchy. And I don't realize somehow, despite the fact that I've lived in this body my whole life, that I'm an older wealthier white man in a powerful situation and i can't go around acting like that my uncle you noticed that when i tried to explain it i said this is he's imagining as a father-daughter type situation and then i corrected myself to uncle niece because that makes it a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit more awkward he doesn't have any kids of his own and he's always struggled he hasn't had a steady relationship um so he was coming on to these like 20 30 something girls when he's in his 50s and then he always spoiled me and my brother like got us the expensive stuff from museum and then he would brag about it to his friends on his phone like they just demanded i get it for them and it's like no you offered that for us so even if hypothetically he didn't intend it to be creepy it was always going to be creepy because you knew what you knew about him and you had to suspect it always yeah and so similarly even if we are to presume that Sal is trying to be just completely genuinely affectionate toward Jade. It is impossible, as we're going to talk about in the Amiri Baraka versus T.S. Eliot episode. He is imagining the dream outside of history and stepping into a fucking pile of shit because he's too stupid to realize that African Americans have good reason to not trust him. After hundreds of years of being held in slavery and being told, oh, you're part of the family, we love you, and being literally fucking raped, right? Yeah, let's- A younger black woman has no reason to trust him. Right, and let's not forget the sexual stereotypes that have surrounded African American women. The Jezebels and the Sapphire. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe he is more nefarious. My point is that even if he's not, even if he's intending to just try and be nice right here what's fucking the situation up is the whole history of racism in america yeah and i came from this approach because i had just finished selma and louise so guys are always trying to like get in your pants take advantage of you kind of stuff yeah even the nice guy is gonna steal your money we see the same thing going on in the way that Sal relates to Mookie, because if I'm going to give Sal the biggest benefit of the doubt that I possibly could, I'd say that in his heart of hearts, he actually wants to accept Mookie as something like a son. But he can't. He is blinded by his own unconscious racism. His son, Pino, is aware of his own racism and is comfortable with his racism in a way that his father is not. His father is unconsciously racist, and you see it in the way that he relates to his sons versus the way that he relates to Mookie, and a lot of it is, again, filtered not only through race, but through class. It's filtered through capitalism, and it's filtered through the fact that his sons are always going to be part owners of the business, and Mookie is always just going to be a worker. So when he talks about how he wants the pizza shop to stay in this location, he, say, he talks about it like they're a family. He talks about it like he's a pillar of the community. He's not, but he thinks he is. He talks about it as, you, my sons, are going to be running this place. And in like a perfect world, in a world without racism, and indeed a world without capitalism, that's the moment at which he would adopt Mookie as his son and be like, you will have just as much a stake in this pizza shop as Vito and Pino do because you work just as hard as they do. That moment where he says, there will always be a place for you, that's that moment where it may not explicitly be the language of slavery, but it echoes so creepily with it. You are part of the family. You are not part of the family. There is a place for you, but you are always at our command. I do believe that this character is doing it 
unconsciously. But if we want to, we can take a more nefarious reading. I think that that works too. It's the same thing that he's doing when he's trying to be nice to Jade. She has no reason to trust him. Hi, this is Frank in Post. I just want to note that the later portions of this episode do deal with representations of sexual assault and of murder, at times in a bit of graphic detail. 